Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello and welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. I'm Davey, your host. And I'm Aubrey Sampson, your co-host. Aubrey, this is going to be part two of a conversation that we have with Dr. Anita Phillips. If you haven't listened to this conversation yet, you need, you need to go back and listen to the part one because yes. there's a lot of backstory there. And um, although this is a continuing uh, segment in our series about racial reconciliation, this particular episode is the one before we talked about mental health and the crossroads of you know mental illness, mental health, and faith. And there's so much rich backstory behind Dr. Anita's story that will help to give you context to some of the reason why she's passionate about helping people, particularly in racial trauma, uh, yeah. walk through healing and not just not just personal healing, but but now also a corporate healing from right. the body of Christ. And this is a powerful conversation. One of the things that I love that she emphasizes is um really a need for humility and a need to listen carefully to one another and um, just a willingness to kind of put our own, I don't know, agendas aside or our own um, emotions aside, not ignoring them, but just uh, to put the other person first in these conversations that can sometimes get really, really heated She's saying, you know, what if the way we have conflict matters as much as the conflict itself? What if the way that we honor each other in hard conversations matters maybe even more than what we're talking about? Wow. And um, I think that's something that we have to keep in mind, uh, especially right now. Well, that's not just um, something that you apply to race conversations, you apply right. that to any conversation that you're going to where there's going to be disagreement. You apply it to to marriage. Oh my gosh. Yep. If you could under if we could get that concept that the way that we have conflict is just as important, if not more yes. than important. Yes. Uh, more important than the conflict itself. I mean, this is huge. And I mean, it just goes back to like when you when you think about the reason there's conflict, James chapter four tells us the reason there is conflict. And that is because uh, you you want something and you don't get it. Oh, it's so true. I mean, that it, he boils it down for us, which is funny because James is the brother of Jesus. And you can only imagine, right? Like how, he's, he never probably had conflict with Jesus in the sense that like Jesus was kind of conflicting. But he, he was probably always the one that was wrong in the situation, right? And I so, mean, certainly if Jesus is your brother, yeah. like you're the one who's in the wrong. Right. It would be the worst thing where it's like Mary coming to Jen. Why can't you just be more like your brother? You know? <laughs> oh, it's terrible. <laughs> it's like, that's the, well, that's the goal. Thanks, mom. You know, I appreciate Thanks. that. We're all, we're we're all, all trying working to, on that. We're to become more like Jesus. <laughs> but if you think about this, this conflict issue, James says it's because of selfishness. And self-centeredness. You want what you want. I want what I want. There's no give. There's no compromise. And then we end up going to an extreme degree to get what we want. He even says it. You know, Mm. you steal, you kill, you you know, you sabotage other people and their reputation. And that's the basis of conflict. And then I love always kind of pitting that passage with Philippians chapter 2. 
because mm. Philippians chapter two shows us that right. that Jesus having equality with God, like being equal to God, did not consider that equality something to be grasped yeah. or to use to his advantage. He, although he's right in every conflict, right. he humbled himself. There it is. He humbled himself. I think himself. about Jesus, even at the Last Supper, Jesus, knowing it was his final hour, knowing he's going back to the Father, like yeah. knowing everything is about to be put under his authority. All, you think about all the things you would do in that situation, right? right? All the ways you'd probably show your power right. or, I, I don't know, Beat do another miracle and, or yeah. preach a sermon Absolutely. or call call uh, the sinners out or whatever. Right. But instead, Jesus takes off his robe and puts on a towel yeah. and washes the disciples' feet. And I think that's that heart of humility that we yeah. have to have. Like you said, Davey, not just in racial trauma conversations, but every difficult conversation right. that we are to be foot washers to the other people yeah. that we're in the conversation with, especially if it's a loved one, right? That yeah. we're meant to love them in the middle of the hard part. This goes totally against our culture, 100% completely. I mean, mm. Jesus said this to the disciples when they were like, okay, which one's going to be greater in the kingdom, right? And he goes, um, hold on. We operate differently. We operate in a, a different paradigm. Um, the, the greatest among you are going to serve. The, the first among you are going to be last, right? This is what he told. And he says, you don't exercise authority the way that the rulers around you do. This, it's, it's very, very different. And so if we could just ask the question, I mean, I'm preaching to myself right now, but if we could just ask right. the question in every situation, how is this situation an invitation for me to walk in humility? To, mm, to humble myself, and again, as Philippians 2 says, put the, the needs and concerns of other people before my own. I think that it would drastically revolutionize the world in which we live and how we interface with other people. This world, would, I mean, it would be turned upside down if we all approach it. How can I look to somebody else's needs before mine? I think the beautiful thing, too, about the gospel and even just about Philippians 2 is that Jesus made the choice, right, to to yeah. strip himself of that divine power. And and because of that, we have access to the Holy Spirit. So when we just can't go into a conversation yeah. with humility, or we feel like we can't, right, that we have access to the very presence of God, the very Spirit of God that allowed Jesus to have right. that humility, we can say, Holy Spirit, fill me with your humility. I don't have it in myself. Right. I need you to help me love this person and listen and... um approach this conversation Seek in a way that would bring honor to them and bring honor to you. Like we don't do it in our own power yeah. is what I'm saying. We, we right. do it with the spirit's power. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and we preface this, uh, in this episode one to just kind of uh, put a preface on all of our, uh, conversations about racial reconciliation, because, you know, honestly, this whole topic, I've not seen more, uh, a situation that has caused vitriol that has caused right. conflict, that has caused a pitting of or a standing on issues more than this issue over the past several uh, months. And, and so I want to preface this because there might be some things, again, that Dr. Anita says that you don't agree with. Yeah. And at the end of the day, um, that's okay. Uh, we can still have unity in the body, even if that's we don't right. have agreement. And it was so helpful for me to just listen in this conversation and try to, um, even though I, 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 I am not going to be able to fully understand because I have not walked in the same experiences as she has 
or as my, my black brothers. But, but for me to go, you know what? Like, I'm just, I'm going to listen and I'm going to absorb and I'm going to learn and I'm going to try to understand where you're coming from. And, and then I'm, I'm not going to try to think about how I would in any way rebuttal that or argue that because that's not, that's not humility. Right. One of the things that, Davey, I think you've actually said this before, but that when we go into those conversations or even now a listener, if you're hearing Dr. Anita and something sort of rubs you the wrong way, it is worth examining kind of your heart, yeah. that moment, like, okay, why, why is this, why is my right. heart beating faster? Right. Why is this triggering something for me? And just invite the Holy Spirit into that. Okay, God, what, what is this about? What yeah. is this triggering in me? And, and I think that's a good, uh, like flag that God is waving to say, Hey, there's something I want to teach you here, or show yeah. you here. That's so good. Um, that's so anyway, good. Dr. Anita talks about a lot of these things. She talks about what it means to put others first. She talks about, again, uh, what it means to have biblical authority and to put Jesus Christ at the center of all of these conversations. And so let's go ahead and take a listen to your interview with Dr. Anita Phillips. If you look at the narrative of scripture and you look at mm-hmm. your protagonist and antagonist, like mm-hmm. let's just talk about as if this is a story. Well, your your protagonist is God's people, right? They're the ones that you're pulling for through the whole journey that there's you're seeing this fall and this this cycle of fall and redemption, restoration, all this stuff that's happening. The antagonist is who? Egypt, Rome, right? Persia, mm-hmm. Syria, like mm-hmm. all of these different mm-hmm. that that are the embodiment of empire. It's mm-hmm. these two kingdoms yeah. that are being expressed throughout the entire thread of scripture, empire versus shalom. And yep. shalom, this more Eastern God's people worldview is more of a collective, communal, community oriented perspective mm-hmm. and worldview. Absolutely. And the American evangelical church is confusing empire for kingdom right now. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And it's about to destroy us. It's about to destroy the body. It's so destructive Mm. because it makes the secular world their stage. And this effort to be in power in government is about empire, not kingdom. Mm. Not kingdom. Kingdom says we're strangers in this world. (laughs) Not kingdom. Didn't they rejected Jesus because he was not offering empire? They were waiting for a Messiah who would overthrow the Romans and set up a government that would keep their people safe and put them in power. And when Jesus did not show up doing that, he was rejected. And we're still failing that way because we want it to be about power. And that's not the first move. And that's not the first move. And the problem with not being willing to learn lessons from the past is not having the humility to see how you have the capacity to fail exactly the same way the people before you, your ancestors have failed and failed and failed and failed. Mm. How did Christians manage? How did Christians manage to argue for slavery for hundreds of years on this continent? How? How did Christians in America manage to justify slavery with their Bibles or choose not to get involved because, you know? Right, right, right. 
I don't, we don't question authority. God sets the authorities. He puts the authorities in place, yeah. be subject to the authority. So we're going to allow slavery because we don't want to buck authority. How, how did Christians do that? Because if you cannot get your hands on how it happened, then you will let it happen yeah, now. That's it. Wow. And every generation has explained it away. And what you think would have been obvious to you then, oh, it would not have been. Yeah. If it's not obvious to you now, the systemic racism that we're dealing with, it wouldn't have been obvious to you during slavery. Let me tell you a crazy story. <sighs> wow. Tell this me. is one of those ones I wouldn't believe it if it hadn't happened to me. Our church is largely black, inner city church um, in Baltimore, Maryland, but we've, we have white members sometimes too. And we had this wonderful young man who moved from his Bible college to Baltimore to be a part of our church, wanting to see more kingdom, wanting to see that integration in church. And I had the opportunity, um, because I happened to be in Ohio where he was from at the time he was home, to go to his family home for dinner. His family had me over for dinner. Such friendly, so wonderful. Now, he had warned me uh, in advance that his mom was a Southern Army, uh, Civil War Southern Army enthusiast. (laughs) And so I had this knowledge going in uh, to the house. You went ahead and put your archetype together in your mind. Yes, exactly. So, yes, here we go. And growing up, his family had gone on most of their family vacations were to visit famous battlefields around the country um, where his mom would collect soil from the ground from these different Civil War battles. And she was just a Southern Army enthusiast. So, sure, as he told me, when I got to the house for dinner, there were jars of soil decorating many um, cabinets and countertops and things. And so, you know, okay, I'm happy I'm here for dinner. And so we're sitting at the table and I don't remember how she managed to bring it into the conversation. Maybe she saw me looking at a jar or something like that. And she started talking about the Civil War. And I'm listening to her. Her husband looks mortified because I guess this is the moment he was dreading. Mm -hmm. And she says to me, well, the Southern armies weren't bad people. They were God-fearing men. They didn't necessarily believe in slavery. They just felt like the states should have a choice. Mm. And I looked at her and I said, I hear you. I'm going to have to say, though, that since my great great grandparents were all still in North Carolina at the time, I'm pretty glad that they didn't end up having a choice Mm. because I might not even be allowed to sit here and eat with you right now. Wow. And the silence. Wow. As her husband's face almost went into his plate because he had his head down so far. Mm. And she was just kind of like astonished. So clear to me that she's never, ever had this conversation with a black person. Mm. I was just like, how, you know, this isn't like the 2000s. This isn't in 1975. And I just sat there shaking my head. She was just so, she had worked this out in her mind that they were good Christians. They just wanted states to have the choice of slavery. Mm. And I was just flabbergasted that even speaking it to me, it did not, as it was coming out of her mouth, looking in my brown face, it did not occur to her that she was suggesting it would have been okay for them to have chosen to have kept my family enslaved and that the world would look different right now if that were the case. Mm. And so for people to feel like that racism doesn't need to be a priority topic in the Christian church world is what allows that kind of mindset to stay alive. And that is the challenge is that a worldview has chosen the top issues and has not identified race as a top issue, has not identified it. And, and oppression 
is spoken to explicitly in the Bible. Yeah, right. That it's not okay and that we should work against oppression. And the fact that it's spoken that we have not continued to suffer oppression or that there's no oppression happening right now, it's heartbreaking to me. It's heartbreaking to me, um, but it's also it also angers me. It also frustrates me yeah. because what I'm seeing on the political landscape right now is everyone's like, well, let's try to just talk about the body of Christ and not talk about politics. We can't. We can't not talk about politics because there's a segment of the largely white evangelical church who have made political power a number one issue. So I understand that we have this challenge, right? No party right. is the Christian party. Right. It should not be said that one is, but it is being said that one is. And so when the church says this party is the Christian party and that party refuses to identify and accept and acknowledge systemic racism and the continued oppression of our people, then what it's saying is the church doesn't believe in you. Wow. And that hurts us. And so now here we are in the body of Christ. Let's. Let's get in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul is talking about the body needing to be together and that we aren't allowed to slice it up in pieces. Black Americans statistically are the most Christian group in the country. We have the highest rate of religiosity of any ethnic group in the country. Pew Research Forum, the numbers have been consistent for decades with that that we have the most um, statistically the most religious group in the country, highest church attendance, highest percentage of people who believe that the Bible is the literal word of God, mm-hmm. highest percentage of people who believe in angels and demons and God. I mean, we're, we are overwhelmingly Christian. Even when we're not Christian, we're Christian. <laughs> there's, there's, there's some data that shows that even Black Americans who say they don't believe in the Bible a certain percentage of them, I think it's 11 or 12%, still go to church every Sunday. Like even when we're not Christians, we're Christians, right? right? Right. (laughs) So to not be seen as a group who is um, a part of the body in this country, Mm. brothers and sisters in Christ, that hurts. Yeah, That hurts because now we have a part of the body is that is suffering. And the Bible says when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer, but it doesn't feel like that to us all the time. And when I first had that conversation with Christine Kane a few months ago, one of the things that I said was, we have rejoiced with you. The Bible says, suffer with those who suffer and rejoice with those who rejoice. I said, we have rejoiced with you. Will you suffer with us? And that resonated with so many people. I can't tell you the thousands of messages that I got and posts of people saying, oh my God, yes, you are right. We will suffer with you. Well, here's your shot. We're on it now. Wow. What will you do? Something has to happen. And so we're going to have to stop looking at this uh, this political landscape as a binary mm. because we're being we're cutting up the body by doing so. Mm. We're cutting up the body by doing so. And so we're going to have to start being more honest about it. And recognizing that we're not in a binary situation. Yeah. We are an incredibly complex yeah. situation right now. Right, right. You know, we, we've kind of come to this place where we're talking about the church. And I, I'll ask two mm-hmm. questions. I know, I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer that you're going to give for the first question. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll preface that first question. And then I'll follow it up with another question. The first question is, should, should the church, right? Even the way that we see, the way that we experience Sunday mornings, let's just talk about, I don't want to be reductionist because there is, this is way, 
more mm-hmm. complex mm-hmm. than just what the the representation of color and white on a Sunday morning, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to just reduce it down to that because there's so many more issues with this, but we all know the phrase that Sunday mornings are the most segregated spaces in mm-hmm. the country, right? Should they be integrated? And the reason I ask this question is I preface it with, um, I was having a conversation and you know, this, this person will for certain, certainly will remain anonymous, but with a, with a black woman mm-hmm. who had experienced some racial trauma and sh- what she expressed mm-hmm. was Sunday morning to me, because our church is all black is safe. Yeah. And, and it's yeah. the one place that I can walk into and I feel understood and I feel, um, I feel treasured. I feel valued. I feel, and, uh, I'm afraid that if there's integration, that that's not going to be the case. And when I heard that, I go, wow. Yeah. I had not thought about that, but I understand. Yeah. And so, you know, that's why I preface, I preface that question, you know, should the church be integrated? And, and then, you know, based on your answer, if, if so, how do we? Should the church be completely integrated? Yes. And it would be if our understanding of God was big enough, Mm. but it's too small because our understanding of God has been so confined by worldview. And then in this country, particularly complicated by power, Mm. we are failing. And so some of it goes to worldview. So I'll start there. Here's one of the issues that define worldviews, one of the values. All human experiences can be classified under one of four categories. Physical pain, physical pleasure, emotional pain, emotional pleasure. There's only four experiences that any human being has. Nothing has ever happened in your life that does not fall under one of those categories. Physical pain, physical pleasure, emotional pain, emotional pleasure. That's part of the theory I developed of human behavior from scripture when I was a PhD student. I found those four elements in the wilderness when Jesus was being tempted because my Bible says that he has been tempted in all points yet without sin. How could Jesus feel all of my emotions? He says he can, he can be touched by the feelings of my infirmities, not my thoughts, my feelings. So Jesus gets us on an emotional level and that he was tempted in every point. So if he was tempted in every point yet did not experience every circumstance, then Mm. there has to be some limited set. Yeah that allowed him to be have been tempted in every point. And those are the four things he was tempted on in the wilderness, emotional pain, right. physical pain, right. emotional pleasure, physical pleasure. And we as ethnic groups arrange those in a value system. Mm. So hmm. my indigenous and native American brothers and sisters genuinely rank emotional pain, freedom, very high. They don't, like to do things that will cause emotional pain for someone else, right? Mm. They're very connected in that way. They're very respectful of, of their elders and of each other. They, you, you don't never, you're not going to find a, a debate club right. in their local community. Right. They don't argue in that way. They <laughs> accept one another's truth because emotional pain freedom is an important element of that culture. We see that in a lot of Eastern Asian cultures as well, emotional pain freedom. But in United States and this Dutch German blend of worldview that we have physical pleasure and emotional pleasure are heightened, mm. right? Life, liberty, and pursuit yep. of happiness, yep. right? right? Physical and emotional pleasure in most black ethnic groups, physical pain, freedom 
outranks emotional pain freedom. Mm. So if you're physically killing us, we're going to stop everything for that. <laughs> and that is more important to us to address the physical issues than to avoid the emotional painful issues. Mm. America's mainstream perspective likes to not deal with emotional right. pain. Avoid it. Right. Right. And so you cannot solve physical pain issues without being in emotional pain. Mm. And so when we say, hey, we need you to solve these issues. And then that world, that worldview yeah. says, oh, you're emotionally yeah. upsetting us. Yeah. Why are you being so angry, mean, divisive? You're emotionally upsetting us. Then it's like mutually exclusive. So you're not willing to be in an emotional pain long enough to solve these problems that we're dealing with in the physical realm. Do you compounded, see what I mean? Yeah, so, compounded by what you said earlier about the, especially the white tradition being future oriented, not wanting to look at and admit mistakes in the past, even if it right, was mistakes, even if it was systemic mistakes, it's something that you weren't personally a part of, but it was your heritage and you have now grown up underneath and been privy to uh, opportunities because of that, you know? Yeah. Right. And, and since when aren't we responsible for Ooh. what's happened to us before? One of the, one of the main economic issues that we're always dealing with this country in this country with is the debt. Yeah. The national debt. That is a major issue. And the reason that people get so upset about the increasing national debt is because they know that their children and their children's children will have to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. So there is an understanding yep, that is. debt. Wow go forward generationally there is a racial debt yeah wow that people have inherited that we that are they're responsible for right now even though they didn't make that debt the same way that wow. our grandchildren will be responsible for the economic debt that we make now it will not free our grandchildren from it just because they didn't make it and we know that which is why we're always grappling with the national debt well guess what there are other kinds of debt and it's unfortunate that your grandparents and your great grandparents didn't think about the fact that they were leaving this debt to you of mistreatment of a people and the oppression of a people, but they did it. And so here we are. Wow. It's not actually a concept that's out of our daily discussion. We just talk about it in terms of economics. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, and just, this may get edited out later, but just to throw this out, cause I like to say it when I can, it wasn't really that long ago. Mm. We're not talking about that long ago. We talk about it. We don't need to talk about it in years and we don't need to talk about it even in generations because mm. people like to say, oh, it was three generations and that makes it sound far. Let's talk about it in lifespan. Yep. That, yeah. I was born in 1973. My parents brought my maternal grandmother to live with them after they got married. So I was raised in the house with both my parents and my maternal grandmother was living there. My maternal grandmother was born in 1907. She lived with me growing up my entire life. She died in the late 90s. So all of my life, I lived with her. She was born in 1907. Harriet Tubman mm. died in 1913. Wow. So my grandmother, who lived with me, who I was raised with, speaking to you right here in 2020, who was alive when my first child was born, her lifespan overlapped yeah. the lifespan of Harriet Tubman. Yeah. Underground Railroad Harriet right. Tubman. So wow. this is... This is not, this is yesterday in terms of human history. This is yesterday. Wow. wow. Man. Everybody can think of how your, your grandmother, a lot of people listening right now, their grandmother's still alive. Yep. So imagine, I'm not talking about a hundred billion years ago. Yep. My grandmother's lifespan overlapped that of Harriet Tubman. Her parents were freed as children. Mm. Wow. 
So this is, you know, it's not a long time ago. So to act like it was that long ago is ridiculous. And I just want to put that out there. It wasn't a long time ago in lifespans, right? And so if my grandmother was born, her lifespan overlapped that of Harriet Tubman. It also overlapped that of those who wanted to keep Black people enslaved. Mm. And to say that those people's grandchildren, who are my age now, have some completely enlightened view is a little bit crazy. Yeah, right. So come on, people. Right. We yeah. don't change that fast. Attitudes just don't change that fast. <laughs> well, so you said it earlier. You said it, we're is, very bad at changing, in fact. <laughs> yeah, so racism is alive and well. Wow. Um, but we are going to have to... Okay, so back to Sunday morning. I'm getting off yeah. Sunday morning. So one of the issues with Sunday morning is that in our segregated churches, we are dealing with what matters most to us. Mm. And so in many white churches, you're going to hear messages about emotional peace Mm. um, Hmm. and safety in his his arms. And very often as the Christian is presented as the child of God, as a little child of God, there's this idea of the Christian as God's little child Mm. who he protects and cares for and, and takes onto his lap. In the traditional average black church, you're going to hear the child of God presented as an adult, Hmm. an empowered adult child of God, one who has inherited from his father Hmm. the power to to do and to will and to move. That's a very different perspective on the child of God. Culture presents that. I, I challenge people to get statements of faith from like, the Southern Baptist Convention and like the Church of God in Christ, lay them next to each other from different ethnic groups, even around the world. And you'll see these slightly different descriptions of God. They're Mm. all biblical, right? but, but they're different because of what the culture sees. Right. Right. See what I mean? Think about Joseph Prince. I love Joseph Prince. (laughs) Nobody teaches on meditation on the word like him. Mm. But when you think about the East Asian tradition of meditation, They understand something deep about that. And so they're wow. able to pull things out of the word that I wouldn't yep. see because my cultural worldview doesn't have that same insight on meditation that they do. Do you yeah, see where I'm going? Exactly so in some ways, it's beautiful because it allows us to see things in the word that others can't see. And that's why the Bible says only together can we know the depth and <sighs> the height it, and the breadth and the width of his love. Because my group can see the depth and your group can see the height and another group sees the width. If we all get together, wow. we'll actually see the whole thing of God. <laughs> but we're not together because we want our part to be the whole part. And that's what Paul was saying. If I'm not the ear, you're not the body. Well, if the whole body was the ear, where would be the seeing? If the yeah. whole body was the eye, where would yeah. be the hearing? But we want our part to be the whole part. Yeah. And we're failing God. Well, also, and we consistently look at that passage in in 1 Corinthians 12. We talk about the body, and we tend to talk about it through the lens of giftings. Right. We don't tend to look at it through the, through the lens of different cultural groups, ethnicities, races, and how all of those comprise together actually give a pure representation of the body of who Jesus Mm -hmm. is in this world and gives us the perspective of who God is in our own eyes. Wow. Right. And before I'm accused of adding something to the word by bringing races and ethnicities into first Corinthians 12, (laughs) listen to my explanation. Again, Paul says that only by the Holy spirit, Oh, cause I know how they try to come for me, but it's okay. Only by the Holy spirit. Can we say that Jesus is the son of God, right? That's what he says. After that, you're going to have differences of administration. Mm -hmm. 
differences in operations and diversities of gifts. They're saying that administration, a way of setting up authority, that's what they're talking about in differences of administration. Well, perceptions of authority are defined in worldviews. Yeah. The reason that there will be differences in administration is because different communities approach authority differently and they will set up the authority in the church based on who they are. And so where else would these differences come from? That's the point. Differences in operation is about differences in purpose, differences in what we're actually going to do. So some churches are very involved in missions and some churches are very involved in something else. But who we are as a people and what we most value in our community is going to inform that. And so this is where those differences come from that he's talking about. It's obvious then when you look at the body of Christ, you can see how divided it is by race. That is the fruit of the different worldviews. That's the key. It's the fruit of the different worldviews. And the Bible, it wouldn't have been written to tell us not to blow this Mm. if we weren't going to blow this. (laughs) If we weren't going to think that our part was the whole part, if we weren't going to teach the doctrines of men as the doctrines of God, if we weren't going to fail in all of these ways, if we weren't going to refuse to suffer with each other, it wouldn't have been written in the Bible. It's so important to remember that the New Testament is mostly talking to Christians, especially Paul, telling us all the ways we're going to screw it up. (laughs) (laughs) And this is one of the ways that we're screwing it up. And this resistance to admit that we're screwing it up, to be humble enough, because Lord knows the American worldview has a corner on pride. Mm. This is a prideful nation. Pride is the sin of this nation, the pride of life. Mm. The mountaintop, all the kingdoms of the world that we want to rule, this nation has a pride issue. Yeah. Yeah. That is what it is. There's a pride issue here. And so to not be willing to be humble enough to say, how did my father and grandfather and great grandfather who loved God manage to also argue for slavery? And if they could do that, what am I missing? Right. Right. What am I missing? That's humility. Where's the humility? And and that is the part that hurts so much. The absence of humility. It's just, oh, wow. The absence of humility, the way that some people who have come to me who disagreed with these things and just refuse to believe that systemic racism exists and want to send me, you know, yeah, the attacking way that they show up. Yeah. I thought you were a Christian. I'm disappointed in you. How could you support that party, that group? Those people are evil. I'm just like, are you a Christian? What in the world? You show up here declaring who's evil when there's none good but God? You show up here telling me you're disappointed in me as a Christian as if you are my maker? How dare you? There's no love in it. Just anger, just fury, just attack. Where's the love? It's not there. Wow. Wow. And it is so devastating. But I continue to just, Black Americans, overwhelmingly, we love Jesus. Mm. Mm. We've been enslaved in his name. We've had churches burned in his name. Crosses burned on our lawns in his name. Shootings in in our churches in his name still naming his name, 
still naming his name, even when those who have consistently, Christians consistently persecuting Black Christians from slavery to this moment, because of them, the name of Jesus is ill spoken of among the Gentiles. But we are still serving him. Wow. Still, still strangers in this land, still serving him. Wow. And I'm not stopping. I'm not stopping. And as much as I am, in, I am pained by my brothers and sisters in Christ who declare that systemic racism doesn't exist and that dealing with oppression is not a Bible issue. You know what? You're still my sister. Mm-hmm. You're still my brother. And I love you because you're still my sister and brother in Christ. And the Bible says that the body parts need each other. Yeah. So I still need you. And believe it or not, you need me. Yeah. The Bible says we have need of each other. Man. We have need of each other. But there's got to be some humility here. There's got to be some humility because it is so painful to the body. And so, no, we won't see church integration widely until we stop viewing God narrowly. And even in churches where we see integrated congregations more time, nine times out of 10 and maybe even 99 times out of a hundred, the leadership is still white. Yeah. Yeah. We very rarely see a, cha- a church with black leadership with a mixed congregation. Yeah. And so even there, you know, I feel like where are my white brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, forget that mission trip to Kenya. Go join a black church in the city near you and stay there for a year. Yeah. Do that. That's a mission. Yeah. There needs to be some body mission right here in the American church. Mm. I want my white brothers and sisters to go into, go serve under a black pastor. Go join it. Mm. Serve and sit there and listen. Don't go there to rescue. Don't go there to fix. Wow. Wow. Go with a humility to say, what, what dimension of God have I been missing by not being among other brothers and sisters in Christ who don't look like me, think like me, feel like me, because God did all of this. What am I missing? It's not just about skin color. It's about our different perspectives and the way we approach it to make up the whole. Yeah. Yeah. You used a, a metaphor earlier in this about, you know, kind of laying out this hypothetical situation where if I came to your house, you know, there's a, there's a certain power structure if, if we had a disagreement. And it's funny because some, in some of these conversations that we've had and some other conversations I've had, we've had this metaphor going about houses and having to, in order for um, the church to truly be integrated, we can't just invite one person to, you know, uh, white church can't invite black people to their church and to sit there and vice versa, right? That there has to be this deconstruction and rebuilding together so that there's leadership that's apportioned. But as you're saying this, I think first, the first step before we can even deconstruct and reconstruct is exactly what you just mentioned, mm-hmm. where yeah. much of white church needs to strip away the pride and, and, and willingly step into the house of black America and serve under the leadership of to say, we're missing something. We're not seeing a facet of God that we've missed it completely. 
And then and only then can we truly understand. And then and only then can we truly seek to create true friendship and unity. And then and only Mm -hmm. then can we deconstruct and reconstruct together. Absolutely. And that process of deconstruction and reconstruction is why I see race and faith and mental health as all connected. Wow. Because it's, when we talk about mental health, that's not a euphemism for mental illness. It's actually mental health. And our mental health is defined by a kind of emotional and cognitive state that we have defined as normal. Mm. And when something happens to shake my normal, it can undermine my sense of mental well-being. Mm-hmm. Now the world is not predictable. I don't know what comes next. I don't yeah. know how to, I'm supposed to feel. I'm still having the emotional reactions that I've always had, but now I'm supposed to feel differently about yeah. this and that. And it is, it's a mental assault. Yeah. That deconstruction that you just mentioned is mentally difficult. Yeah, right. It's emotionally uncomfortable yep. and it's mentally difficult. And yeah. so one of the challenges that I feel like I see with um, what we would we refer to as allies, um, non-Black people who are coming alongside in this journey and saying, I do want to suffer with you. I do believe this is an issue of finding emotional breaking points at which they fall back. Oh, wow. Because that kind of emotional pain and pressure much, that yeah. is required for this transformation mm. becomes more than they're ready to bear at that time. That's why it's a mental health issue is that we have to look at what does change require. People are going to need to reconstruct their way of viewing reality. (laughs) It's not a small thing. It's not a small thing. It's not a small thing because these things are all mixed together. And so what happens is when they encounter an issue with black people. So like this happened with the protests when we started seeing, um, some rioting happening alongside the protests. There was lots of, um, yes, the protests, yes, we need to do it. Yes, Black Lives Matter. We saw we saw the most diverse response to the church we've ever right. seen. And right. I do want to acknowledge that. Yeah. And it, it blessed my soul to see it. It just, it was the most diverse response we've ever seen. So many churches that are predominantly white in membership, predominantly white in leadership that were posting, that were protesting, marching. It was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing to see. Um, but when we saw some riots spark in different places, yeah. it was almost like someone hit control, alt, delete. So people are old enough to know what that means. Right. Control, yeah. alt, delete sends the computer back into default mode yeah. and everyone went ah, law and order, law and order. And everybody ran back into there and went back to where they started. Now it's just like, Oh, those people, those black folks, they don't deal with law and order. They're destroying property and they just ran away. Mm. And what I heard from some was wanting like me to get on my social media, to get out there and like condemn the rioting right away. You have to condemn that. We, we support these things, but you must condemn it. And it became more important to condemn that mm. than to articulate it as a symptom of a problem not being solved. Mm. But that, that law and order piece is so much in the Western worldview that when it looked like it was being challenged, it was like everybody just started collapsing. Yeah. And so it's emotionally difficult to change the way you look at things when you see it. Yeah. 
that's what I mean when I say there's some mental health issues going on here because it's emotionally difficult to change um, what you see right. when people saw that. So now people are listening and they're thinking, well, what were we supposed to do? We're just supposed to ignore that. It's okay. People can just be running around out here. We have to stop that. We have to clamp it down. We have to send in the authorities because a worldview defines the problem and then defines the solution. But here's what I want them to hear. I'm about to read a couple of paragraphs from Dr. King's book. Where do we go from here? His last book that he wrote before he died. Yeah. And he says this, it cannot be taken for granted. He says Negroes. I'm going to say Black Americans to help people bring it into the present. It cannot be taken for granted that Black Americans will adhere to nonviolence under any and all conditions. Mm. When there is rock-like intransience or sophisticated manipulation that mocks the empty-handed petitioner, rage replaces re reason. Nonviolence is a powerful demand for reason and justice. If it is rudely rebuked, it is not transformed into resignation and passivity. Southern segregationists in many places yielded to it because they realized that the alternatives could be intolerable. Northern white leadership has relied too much on tokens and substitutes and on black patients. The end of this road is clearly in sight. The cohesive, potentially explosive black community has a short fuse and a long train of abuses. Those who argue that it is hazardous to give warnings, lest the expression of apprehension lead to violence, are in error. Violence has already been practiced too often and always because remedies were postponed. Mm. It is understandable that the white community should fear the outbreak of riots. They are indefensible as weapons of struggles, and black Americans must sympathize with whites who feel menaced by them. Indeed, Black Americans are themselves no less menaced. Yet the average white person also has a responsibility. He has to resist the impulse to seize upon the rioter as the exclusive villain. He has to rise up with indignation against his own municipal, state, and national governments to demand that the necessary reforms be instituted, which alone will protect him. If he reserves his resentment only for the Black American, he will be the victim by allowing those who have the greatest culpability to evade responsibility. Mm. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. There is no other answer. Constructive social change will bring certain tranquility. Evasions will merely encourage turmoil. Black Americans hold the only one key to the double lock of peaceful change. The other is in the hands of the white community. Wow. Wow. Right. Do you hear what I'm saying? So it's, a, it's an emotional transition to go from Law and order, law and order, yeah, send in the right. military. They're destroying property to, oh my gosh, American government, hurry up and give them justice because it is our delay of justice that is causing this rage. We are responsible. That's a completely different way of conceptualizing the problem. But that was how Dr. King conceptualized the problem. Yeah. It was a different worldview. So to go from the worldview that you brought into this with good intentions, and to recognize that it is that worldview that has caused and maintained the problem and then lay it down and define it completely differently. That's hard on the mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard on the heart. And so people will feel like it's attacking their mental well-being and, and nobody wants to be in that kind of mental pain. But when I say, will you suffer with us? That's what I'm asking for. Yeah. Wow. We are barely scratching the surface of these complex issues. Yeah. And we, we are, I mean, I feel like we could sit and talk about this for hours and hours and hours and hours. And what I really want the listener to uh, some takeaways mm -hmm. here for me, a personally takeaway. I, I want to go read what you just 
read to us. I want to go read. Please Where read the whole book. Here? Oh my gosh. The entire book. I think it it's will a blow your mind. Takeaway because I think it's only when we begin to seek to understand the other worldview that we can truly begin to create some unity and restoration in all of this stuff. And mm-hmm. Dr. Anita, I'm just so grateful that you've just kind of started scratching the surface on some of these conversations with us. And, um, and, and, and even though it may make some people who are listening feel uncomfortable, I would encourage you to lean into that discomfort because again, that is, that is part of the remedy for this is to lean into that yeah. discomfort. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your yeah. heart. Thank you for making space for me to speak authentically and welcoming that. And thank you for what you just said about leaning into discomfort that I want people who are feeling that discomfort to hear me. I am a woman of God. I love Jesus and I love the body of Christ. Mm. (laughs) I love the body of Christ. I care about what you care about, Mm. but I also want you to care about this. Yeah, that's great. And recognize there is a biblical mandate to address the oppressed. Mm. And when you have a group of people, 90% of whom are saying, this is true, don't hide in the 10% you can find to agree with you so that you can stay where you are. Wow. No one would solve a problem like that. Hmm. If you were sent into a company or a job to say, hey, we're having a problem we need you to solve, and you surveyed everyone working there, and 90% of them said, this is the problem, and 10% said something different, you would not go back to your boss and say, we're going to go with the definition of the 10% Hmm. and solve the problem. Wow. Right? Yeah. And so listen to the masses. Hmm. Listen to the masses. Listen to our hearts cry. We're your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Anita. So wonderful. Thank you. That was such a powerful conversation with Dr. Anita yeah. Davy. Thanks for chatting with her. I'm so grateful that she shared her art with us. Oh, Aubrey, thank you for connecting us yeah. with her. I mean, that's, man, that was awesome. I love that that worked out. You can find Dr. Anita on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Anita Phillips. Um, we also just want to shout out to Sleeping at Last for providing the music for the Nothing is Wasted podcast. You can listen to his music anywhere that you find your music. That's right. Let me give you guys a couple of ways that uh, we would love for you to partner with us. One would be to go and rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. This really helps to uh, cause this podcast to kind of climb in the charts, so to speak, gain more exposure, so that when Mm -hmm. people are just Googling or searching podcasts that might be applicable to their situation, this one will pop up. And so we would love for you to rate and review. We also love reading those reviews. It encourages us. And share this podcast. Uh, It's really great when we see people all over Instagram or social media sharing it. We like to kind of forward that over. But share it to some of your friends who are um, wrestling with this topic or any of the other topics that we talk about. We'd love to hear your story. Uh, We have a platform where we share stories that aren't necessarily featured on the podcast. This is our stories platform, nothingiswasted.com slash stories. Go there, submit your story, and we'd love to post it and share it to help people as they're walking through their valleys and their 
trials. You, yeah. you can also follow us on Instagram, Nothing Is Wasted Ministries. We're doing some book giveaways and all kinds of fun things there. So you don't want to miss out on that. You can follow me at Davey Blackburn and you can follow Aubrey at Obsamp, A-U-B-S-A-M-P. And Davey, I am really looking forward to next week's episode yeah. with Serena Dykeson. It's an emotional one. Yeah. Um, it's a powerful one. She's going to talk about um, her experience with abortion and she's going to talk about her ministry and all the things that God has done. And so listener, this is one that you are not going to want to miss. Yep. You are going to want to share. And yeah. um, especially if you have someone in your life that has walked through an abortion, I think this is a really powerful uh, conversation yeah. for them. So let's go ahead and take a listen to a little bit of your conversation with Serena Dykeson. I had an uncle that started coming around and um, started to ask if I would babysit. And we didn't think anything of it. Like I was kind of like, that was an honor to, to be asked to yeah, babysit. Yeah. And it didn't take long before I ended up getting assaulted by him. Oh, and um, just my world just turned upside down. Yeah. Because How I, old were you at this time? 13. Wow. I was 13. And that assault um, resulted in a pregnancy. And I just didn't even understand any of that. I, I knew that I was in trouble. I knew that I needed help. And so I ended up sharing with a student um, on the bus that I wasn't even friends with that I just needed help. Yeah. And uh, they made a report at school and my parents came in and they were just shocked. They didn't know what to do. And we went to our family doctor's office. And of course, a pregnancy was confirmed and my parents were looking for help. They, they needed help. And our family doctor said, well, what do you think about abortion? 